I Read Comics, show number 82, at last. Well, that was a break. It wasn't an intentional break. Partly what happened was that after the WonderCon thing in San Francisco, you know, we tried to record that, and the iFanboy guys were sheepishly apologizing to me and saying, oh, sorry, the recording got messed up. And that really bummed me out because it felt like that was a really cool thing that we did by having people come up on the podcast panel and talk about what they liked and do some on-the-spot interviews and arguing and stuff, and then it all got lost. So I was totally bummed about that and somewhat demoralized for a while. So um, that just made me not want to talk about comics for a bit. But I did go to Free Comic Book Day, um, and I got some cool stuff, which I'll talk about. And I've been doing a lot more with the Star Trek podcast, the one that's called Look at His Butt. Um, So if you want to hear about the Star Trek stuff, you can go listen to that. Um, Part of that included, of course, going to see the new Star Trek movie, which was totally cool. Um, I didn't like Chris Pine, but the rest of it was cool. And I read the Star Trek comic books, the countdown comic books, after I saw the movie, and that was pretty cool, too. So what have I been doing since then? Well, I've been reading stuff. I ordered a bunch of stuff that I'm waiting for it to show up from Tomorrow's and from some other places. And I just decided to start rereading Watchmen again. So I want to talk about Watchmen. And first I want to talk about a cool thing that I got from the library, which is called Houdini, the Handcuff King. And it's aimed at younger readers. It's probably, I don't know, like the 9 to 12 range. And it's by Jason Lutz and Nick Bertazzi, and it's published by the Center for Cartoon Studies, which I never heard of before. So in the back it says, The Center for Cartoon Studies, America's premier cartooning school, was founded in 2005. So apparently they published these books, which I didn't know about. And this was in the graphic novel section of my library, and it looked cool. It's pretty short, and it tells the story of one of Houdini's famous public stunts, which was in 1908. He jumped off the Harvard Bridge into the river and managed to get out of some handcuffs that he was in. And he did this stunt a lot. And this particular incident is just used to explain who he was and why he did what he did and some of the trickery that, not trickery, some of the tricks he used to get out of handcuffs while he was, you know, falling into the water. So it's good. I think it's a great introduction to Houdini for kids who might not know too much about him. Uh, The art is really nice. It's black and white, but it's got a beautiful blue wash that's over it, which I like quite a bit. Um, And it doesn't have too much text in it. There are a couple of pages that are a little text heavy. And what is also very cool is that it's very historically accurate. So there's uh, some notes in the back from the illustrator um, and the author, it's called uh, Panel Discussions, and it talks about why things are drawn the way they are in the panels. And again, aimed very much at kids who might not know this stuff. Like, there's a whole section called, um, in the early part of the 20th century, everybody wore hats. Because in the crowd scenes, obviously, everyone's wearing a hat. And to a child now, that would be kind of unusual because people don't really wear hats. 
And there's another one called reporters couldn't email or fax their stories to the newspapers to explain why at one point a reporter rushes over to a telephone to try to phone in uh, the news brief about Houdini's performance. So I, I thought that was kind of cool. So clearly this is a guide that could be used if this book was being um, used in school or if someone was using it to um, in some other context to teach a kid about Houdini and science and things like that. But it's nice in that it shows, I think, a pretty good portrait of Houdini. I've read some stuff about him, and it shows his relationship with his wife, Beth, who he was his partner, not just his wife, and how she helped him with tricks like this, and also showed his impatience with people who didn't agree that he was the greatest magician of all time, and how he needed his support group and how he was a real innovator in terms of public relations and press and getting attention for all the stunts that he did. So for a short book and for one that focuses on just one event in his career, I thought it was really cool. So if you are interested in Houdini, I'd say, you know, read it. And if you have, if you know kids who are interested in wanting to know more about Houdini, I would say it's it's a great book for them. It's totally kid safe um, and funny. It has some more or less adult jokes in it, but um, it, it's, it's a good book. I like it. I think there should be more stuff like this. Um, you know, I was telling somebody at WonderCon about the Project X books and how they're like really, really good case studies of things that might otherwise seem kind of boring. Um, you know, how did 7-Eleven get started, and how did Cup Noodle get invented, things like that. And I, there's just so much of a possibility for presenting factual information in this format, which makes it easier for kids, but also for adults to get interested in. Um, not that you can't read a book and find it interesting, but that it's a combination of the words and the pictures just makes it come to life and makes it that much more vivid. I think it, it sticks with you more when you can see it in this format, when there's a combination of a picture to go along with the words. It really stays in your memory more. So I like this book, Houdini, the Handcuff King. And it's got a really nice design to it also. Um, it's a, a nice-looking book. This happens to be the hardcover edition. I don't know if it actually comes out in paperback or not, but it's a nice thing to have on the shelf. Um, before I, I wanted to take just a little break before I get into the Watchmen stuff, but um, I'm on Twitter now. I think I posted this on the comics blog. So if you want to follow me, it's obviously Lena Taylor at Twitter, and um, all of the new show stuff for the this show and for the Trek show get up there. But I post a lot of other stuff um, too, and stuff that appears at the blog also gets fed in there. So you can definitely follow me there. Um, and I've been doing these other things called audio boos, which I found out from Stephen Fry, because I follow him on Twitter. And they're basically like mini, mini podcasts. So I did a whole series of them when I was collecting the Star Trek toys from Burger King. But I wanted to continue to do them for other sort of on-the-spot fun things, because I think they're kind of cool. And the audio boos go into the Twitter feed, too, so you can listen to them that way. So let me take a little break, and then I want to come back and talk about the lovely, lovely Watchmen.
also Watchmen, which is a graphic novel, in case you didn't know, by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. And the version that I'm reading now over and over again is the absolute version, which I bought online somewhere. And it's quite beautiful. It comes in this lovely hardcover edition in a slipcase with a nice dust jacket and all of the extra um, information that had been included in the uh, Italian graffiti edition, I think, back <laughs> in the 80s or something like that. Anyway, um, it's all been recolored, and it's very, very, very beautiful. Interestingly, it doesn't have any um, real additional, like, new information. I kind of thought that when they did the Absolute Edition, they might have put um, more text, you know, like uh, new commentary or something like that. Um, there, there is some a little bit of extra stuff in the back, but nothing that's that's new. Um, there's a short essay by Alan Moore, but that was at the time that the graphic novel came out. And um, let's see, this last thing by Dave Gibbons is 1988. So that's when the the last new content had been added to this thing. When I was at the bookstore, I actually looked at the the new new book that came out in time with the movie, the the Dave Gibbons. Um, watching the Watchmen thing, which was pretty cool, but it didn't seem like something I wanted to invest in because it was expensive, and it mostly focused on the art, which is, you know, fantastic, but I just kind of wanted more text. And as I was reading through this, one of the things that I did was to go online and look at the annotations to it, which are really good and helpful. And if you haven't read through the annotations, there's one site in particular which gets reproduced in a lot of places that's particularly good, and I'll put up the link to it. Um, and that, it, it helped. It called my attention to a lot of things that I don't think I had noticed on reading it through the first time. Um, you know, I still haven't seen the movie yet because I just didn't get a chance to see it while it was in the movie theater, and I think that the DVD is coming out in July, which is really soon. So I am definitely going to get it, and I heard that the DVD was going to be longer and have more stuff, and um, that's always a good thing in my book. So I'm very much looking forward to that. Reading it through this time, you know, one of the things that I hadn't, when I talked about this before, because I know I've talked about Watchmen on the show, um, I hadn't really gotten into the Ditko stuff at that point. And on reading it through this time, I was really struck by the contrast between Rorschach and Mr. A. And Alan Moore has said that he was inspired to a certain degree to do Rorschach based on Ditko's Mr. A, um, you know, Ayn Randian sort of uncompromising morality. A is A, black is black, and white is white, and there is no gray. And yes, Rorschach is very much that character. But the, the huge difference, and, and this is something that I've been talking about when I was reading the Ditko stuff, is that all of his Ditko stuff, Mr. A, his recent Mr. A, and all of his other things, they're, they're so devoid of any emotion or relation to the way people actually are. It's very hard to feel anything for the characters, and maybe that's in his intention. I don't know. But, you know, you read through them, and you don't feel sympathy. You don't feel... Um, like you connect with them. You don't feel like it actually is a commentary on humanity because Ditko's version of what should be is so far removed from what actual people do and think and say that it's just like reading about, you know, some science fiction world, but not even that because you, you connect to people or characters in science fiction. Rorschach, I think, is a great example of what happens 
to a character who behaves like that in the real world, who thinks that everything is black and white, um, and how he would function and what he would end up like. And especially, and I think this is the really important thing, where he stops being black and white. And that was the one thing I really noticed going through this again, were all the little places where Rorschach doesn't abide by his own code. And that's the part where you really feel most for him and why you're sad at the end of the book when he gets blown up <laughs> by Dr. Manhattan. I had kind of forgotten that that happened. I re- it's been so long since I read the book. I read it through from front to back, and when I got to the end, I was like, wait a minute, what happens to Rorschach? And then, you know, John points his finger at him and he blows up. Um, and I felt really bad about that, which, of course, was Alan Moore's intention. Rorschach is the one character through this whole book who um, is clearly psychotic in a lot of ways. He's been uh, turned into a monster himself by fighting with the monsters. He's been uncompromising in the way that nobody else has. Um, and yet he's the one at the end that you're rooting for. You want him to make it back to um, civilization and uncover uh, Adrian as the mastermind behind this whole thing. You know, it, it's the whole plot that, that Adrian sets up so that nobody can go and tell the truth because it will make things worse feels awful. And they feel awful about it, but they agree to do it anyway. And Rorschach is the one who says, no, I won't let this happen. I can't let people think that we were attacked by aliens just for the sake of bringing peace. That's not right. It doesn't fit in with his moral code. And he knows that he he's probably going to die for it, but he has to make the attempt anyway. And he ends up being really noble in that way. And it's it's, you know, typical Alan Moore. He takes the craziest character in the book and makes him the hero. Uh, and not an anti-hero either. He really is a hero by the time you get to the end of it. Um, and all, like I said, all those little places where he decides that he has to be more human and more flexible when he goes to visit Moloch and wants to bust him because he's taking Laetrile, which is an illegal drug for his cancer, and ends up not. He says he's copied down the name and address of the manufacturer, but he leaves the meds on the table. And then, this is especially touching, and and reading through it, this is one of my favorite parts of the whole book, is when uh, John, (coughs) sorry, when um, Dan, um, Night Owl, and Laurie spring him from prison, and he has to collect his um, stuff, his spare costume and everything from his apartment and he um, goes in and there's a great panel where you see him uh, coming into his little crappy apartment and it's drawn exactly the same as the very first panel where he is, not the first panel, but the first time we see him coming into the comedian's apartment, it's drawn exactly the same way. It's really, really cool. Um, And the landlady is there and she's scared shitless when she sees him because she knows who he is. And uh, he says, you know, uh, you told the the reporters that I made advances on you. And that was very bad. In in Rorschach terms, when he says very bad, you know it's really bad and he's probably going to kill someone. And he says, uh, Dan says to him, leave it. And he says, can't, serious business, slur on reputation. And then he says to her, how much did they pay you to lie about me? And she says, don't say that, not in front of my kids. They don't know. And there's a shot of her 
holding on to one of her kids, who's also terrified. He's crying, and there's snot streaming out of his nose. But he's clinging to his mother because he's so scared. And then there's a one panel of Rorschach looking down at this kid, and he's you know he's Rorschach, but he's also Walter at the same time because he's not wearing his costume. And you see it all in his face. The art is so good. You see him trying to come to this decision and remembering what it was like to be a scared kid and seeing how this kid can hold on to his mother. He's not afraid of his mother. He's afraid of Rorschach. And he says, got what we came for, finished here now, let's go. And he leaves. And that's him getting in touch with his human side and making the right decision, not right according to his moral code, but it's the right decision. It's the right thing to do because there's no point. What would be the point in killing this woman and leaving her children orphans or terrorizing her even more or breaking her finger as he often does with people. There's no point to it and he understands that. And it's a huge turning point for him in this process. And a little bit later we see him and Dan in the the Night Owl machine uh, waiting to go and get some more information and, and Night Owl says to him, you know how hard it is being your friend? Who do you think you are? You live off people while insulting them. Nobody complains because they think you're a goddamn lunatic. And then he apologizes a little. And Rorschach says, you're a good friend. I know that. I'm sorry that it's sometimes difficult. And he, again, manages to overcome his black and white strict moral code to literally reach out his hand. He's holding his hand out to Dryberg at that point and saying, I'm sorry. And that's just huge. And that just really makes you like him that much more. You you sympathize with him. You understand where he's coming from. I guess that's the other thing with in contrast to the Ditko stuff is that when you see people like Mr. A or some of his other characters, you can't understand what their thought processes are or why they are the way they are or where they come from or how they've suddenly decided that black and black is black and white is white and there's no in between, you know. Like what was the thing that made them decide that they had to stop being human and had to start being robots or whatever. Um, and in Rorschach's case, we know. We know where that all came from. Um, and we see him, at this point, really fighting to overcome that a little bit. And, and we root for him. We want him to be like that. We want him to succeed. Um, he's just an amazing character. I would say one of the most amazing comic book characters ever. Um, and it's too bad that he gets killed at the end of the book, but I guess it had to be. In in the world of Watchmen, he couldn't go on. Um, but wow, amazing writing. I don't, I, I'm trying to think of other characters who are as powerfully drawn and as deep and as complex and who go from being complete lunatics to someone that you're rooting for at the end and you want them to do the right thing, the really, really right thing, as compared to all the other um, superheroes who aren't going to do the right thing. It's amazing. Um, another thing I noticed upon reading this again was how much I disliked Dr. Manhattan. Um, I guess the first time through, I was a little in awe of him as a character because he is pretty much God. And at the end of the book, he goes off to be God. He leaves for another galaxy to create some life. Um, boy, he's a dick, isn't he? <laughs> you know, I'm sorry he got disintegrated and then came back and all that. But man, he's not very likable. And um, I guess since he's a god, he's supposed to be a little above people liking him or disliking him. But, um, yeah, he's he's pretty much a jerk. Just in his dealings with people and the fact that he um, 
has this, uh, he doesn't have a command over time, but he lives in different times at the same time. So he can be in the past, he can be in the present, he can be at the future. And yet he doesn't do anything with that aside from annoying other people by saying, oh, this is going to happen a little bit in the future. And um, you really, um, me, okay, let me say this, my personal feeling is that I, I wanted to shake him and I wanted to make him do stuff. And the fact that by becoming this being, he becomes so detached from humanity is really sucky. You know, he's the one creature who could actually affect things. And when he does affect things, it's, you know, against the Viet Cong in the Vietnam War. And that's, like, awful. And you also see him doing this and think, wow, why did he do that? Why did he let himself be a pawn of the government, of Nixon, no less, and work with the comedian spreading chaos and death and suffering and terror and all that just so that the United States could win that war? Wow, that's really horrible. And not just amoral, but immoral. He could have found another way to stop that other than, you know, there's a, a scene of him as a huge blue giant going through the Vietnamese jungle, sort of blowing things up with his finger. It actually reminded me a little bit of Tim the Enchanter from Holy Grail. You know, he's like pointing his finger and things are going boom. Why did he do that? Why didn't he just stop things some other way, some nonviolent way? Um, it, that's not really explained. And I guess you're supposed to assume he just doesn't care very much. In fact, this is reinforced a little bit in the scene at the end of the Vietnam War when the comedian um, is confronted by the Vietnamese woman um, that he's had sex with and is going to leave. She's going to have his baby, and he just says, basically, screw you, I'm out of here. And then she cuts him with a, a broken bottle, and he shoots her dead. And um, Dr. Manhattan, John, does nothing to stop this, and it's just very removed, like observing, and the comedian calls him on it and says, you could have stopped that. You could have stopped her from cutting me, and you could have stopped me from shooting her, but you didn't. And it's, I guess, um, that is a comment on the character of Dr. Manhattan, but I think also a meta comment on uh, what superheroes could become. If they were that powerful that they became like gods, wouldn't they just not care about humanity anymore? You know, we would want them to, but they would get bored with it, I guess, and look for new challenges. So creating all-powerful characters, um, you really wonder why they'd be concerned with humanity. And, and, you know, that's a question sometimes about characters like, I don't know, Thor, <laughs> I suppose. You know, yeah, yeah, he's, he's Don Blake, you know, he's human, but when he's in Thor mode, why would he even care? Why would Darkseid really care about what goes on? If they're that powerful, wouldn't they have better things to do? I don't know. Maybe they're bored. Um, I, I find that uh, I'm going through the book again. It's uh, pretty uh, atheistic, which sits just fine with me, maybe not for some other people. Um, and I wonder, you know, about uh, Alan Moore's personal take on that, given that at one point he got really into, you know, believing that magic was real and that there are fairies living in the garden. I think he sort of recovered from that. But... Um, this, the, the world of Watchmen is very much set up, as Rorschach says, you know, there aren't any gods, there's nobody doing all the horrible things, it's just us, and he's right, pretty much. I think you have to accept that um, to deal with what happens in the world, that it, there isn't anybody pulling the strings, it is just us, and if anybody's going to do anything about it, it has to be us, 
We can't rely on anyone else. I just found the section where he says that. Existence is random, has no pattern, save what we imagine after staring at it for too long. No meaning, save what we choose to impose. The rudderless world is not shaped by vague metaphysical forces. It is not God who kills the children, not fate that butchers them, or destiny that feeds them to the dogs. It's us. Only us. And uh, he says all that to his psychiatrist who is freaked out by the whole thing. And uh, it's interesting that he's freaked out by it, too, because you'd think that being that kind of a psychiatrist and seeing so many um, criminals, he'd be, he would know that, or he would at least know that people could think that way, but he seems completely taken aback and completely um, demoralized by that. And I was just looking at the scene after this. Uh, well, just to go back, I'm sure you've noticed if you've read Watchmen that everybody's word balloons, with the exception of Rorschach's, have words that are uh, bold or in italics or who use exclamation points and things, and Rorschach never does. He, he, I guess we're supposed to assume that he speaks in a monotone. Even when he's not got the Rorschach costume on, he never emphasizes words. I'm talking like William Shatner now. He never emphasizes words or says anything with any urgency. Everything is very flat. And in the little scene after Rorschach says this to his psychiatrist, um, he has he's with his wife at a dinner party that they're organizing, and his <laughs> he starts talking like that too. So it, it starts off as the notes of Dr. Malcolm Long, and he doesn't use exclamation points or none of his words are bolded anymore either. And it's that thing about working with monsters turns you into one yourself, and that happens to him too. He absorbs a little bit of, of Rorschach's view, his worldview. Um, and then later on, when he uh, at, at the end, when the thing is about to happen in Manhattan, he runs into his wife, and he's still sort of in the same mode. She wants to get back together with him, and he's kind of saying, I don't think this is going to work, you know, something... Something has happened, <laughs> and things aren't the way they used to be. Um, the Absolute Edition has some pretty amazing uh, visuals in it. The recoloring has really added to it. You know, the version of it that I looked at before, I'd gotten from the library, and it was one of the original trade paperbacks. And this one, I'm looking now at um, Chapter 12, where you see all of the devastation from uh, the squid. And these panels are really, really powerful. Um, so much detail in them and so awful. And yet the way Dave Gibbons has put them together, you just get this whole panorama of destruction. And you see all of the secondary characters who are in there. They're very clearly drawn. You see what happens to all of them. And it's really amazing, just looking at it now, really horrible. You really feel the horror of it and you see the devastation. And all of that leads up to the fact that, you know, Adrian is forcing everyone to accept the solution that he caused this supposed alien invasion so that everyone would unite. Um, and was it really worth killing half of Manhattan to do that? Would there really have been nuclear war if he hadn't done it? You know, he thinks he knows the answer, but you never can tell. It might not have happened. And as John says to him at the end, I mean, it's the one thing he says when Adrian um, says, uh, I did the right thing, didn't I? It all worked out in the end. And John says, in the end? Nothing ends, Adrian. Nothing ever ends. 
And so Adrian has to think about that because that's absolutely true. You know, maybe people are going to come together for a little while after this, but how long is that really going to last? It's sort of the human condition to bitch and moan and argue and fight with other people. And maybe the peace lasts for five years or 20 years or 100 years, but it's not going to last forever. It's a very temporary solution to an eternal problem. And I don't think we're supposed to agree that it was the right solution. It was a solution. It was Adrian's solution. He thinks he knows the answer, but that's his problem, right? He lacks the long-term vision to see that this isn't the solution. It's just a stopgap, like everything else is a stopgap forever and ever, as long as there are people around. Um, you know what's really weird about Adrian? Is that he wears that damn Ozymandias costume all the time. I was just noticing that when he comes back to his uh, Antarctic Antarctic lair, um, he gets off the plane and he, he's walking from the plane to his, uh, his beautiful place and his assistants are helping him. And as he's walking, he's stripping out of his clothes and putting on his superhero outfit. And I gotta say, it doesn't look all that comfortable because it's got that great big collar and a long cloak that kind of trails around after him. Boy, what a narcissist that he has to dress like that when he's just, you know, kicking back and watching his hundred TVs. Very, very weird. And, and I like the fact that they did that because it makes you start to realize that, yeah, he thinks he's the world's smartest man, but he's really crazy. In fact, he's probably just as crazy as Rorschach or anybody else that's in this book because he puts on a costume when he wants to think about stuff. <laughs> um, so many other things about this book that are good. The whole uh, Tales of the Black Freighter story that's overlaid on top of this which is a commentary not only on what's happening in Watchmen, but also on superheroes in general and what we're supposed to think about them and what their place might be, that they think they're always doing the right thing, um, but at what cost and are they really meant to be, um, are they really fighting reality or are they just fighting something that's in their heads, um, you know, fighting against, Costume. Well, the comedian says this, you know, they're fighting against the crime that's in the United States, and that's not really the big problem. The big problem is, of course, people always fighting with each other. Um, and, you know, going through this again, um, brilliant the way the comedian is shown. Um, I was reading something online about uh, the guy, the actor who plays the comedian in the movie, which I haven't seen. Did I mention I haven't seen the movie? Um, and how he cut the script, and he's like, wait a minute, my character dies in the very first scene. And they had to convince him, you know, read the rest of the script. Your character is essential to the movie. And his character is essential to this book, and he is the, the, the guy who does see things really clearly, and that's why he's perfect to go to Vietnam, and that's why he understands, um, you know, hence his name. He's a comedian. It's that everything is a joke. It's a gag. Um, there is no solution, and... You just need to do what you can in certain situations. And he is a character who takes pleasure in it. You know, you see very clearly that all of the superheroes are little archetypes, right? So the comedian is, is a, a sadist who really revels in this kind of stuff. And um, Dr. Manhattan is above it because he becomes something else. And um, someone like uh, Hollis Mason, the original Night Owl, he 
just has a very strong sense of right and wrong and, and wants to do what he can on the micro level. And then he gets out when he sees that it's not really helping or making a difference anymore. Um, and Ozymandias thinks he's the smartest guy in the world and that he can just solve all the problems because he's just so much better than everybody else. Um, and I don't think, I mean, in a way you do identify with the comedian because he does see the big picture and he does see that what they're doing is just being vigilantes and fighting in a small way, but he likes it, so he does it anyway. Um, and even he is shaken to the core by what Adrian has planned um, and thinks that it's just impossible and he can't really deal with it. And um, you notice that in the scene at the very beginning when he's beaten up and thrown out the window, he doesn't really resist. He, at that point, is very fatalistic about what's going to happen to the world and maybe what's going to happen to him, so he doesn't bother fighting back. Oh, what else can I say? Did you notice that the moon is always full in this book? Every time the moon is shown throughout the whole thing, and, you know, this takes place over the course of a, a month or two, the moon is always full. It's a weird world that the watchmen live in where the moon is always full. Um, one of the commentators had pointed out that um, the attack on Adrian that he plans on himself um, was really pointless because he didn't need to do that. There was nobody else who was really thinking about mass killers aside from Rorschach. But it was necessary to throw the reader off the track um, so that we wouldn't suspect it was Adrian right up until the end. And, you know, I guess that's true, but I think that um, Adrian has more respect for Rorschach and realized that he would need to do that in order to throw Rorschach off the trail because he knows he is a smart guy and probably would have figured this out sooner rather than later. So maybe it's not just to, to throw the reader off. Um, there's one thing upon rereading it that bugged me, and I want to see if anybody else agrees with this. In the prison sequence before Rorschach gets busted out by Dan and Lori, um, the guy that he put away in jail, um, big figure, um, there's a riot in the jail, and they're going to bust into Rorschach's solitary confinement cell and kill him. Um, and one of uh, Big Figure's henchmen sticks his arms through the bars and Rorschach kind of grabs him and ties him up so his arms are sticking through the bars and his body's actually covering the lock. And that's a part of the plot because they're going to use an arc welder to cut through the lock to get to Rorschach, Big Figure and his guys. So um, they decide that they're going to have to kill the guy whose body is blocking the lock so that in case they burn him with the arc welder, it won't matter. Um, the way it's drawn, it didn't seem like they had to do that because he's got his arms sticking through the bars, and yeah, Rorschach has used his shirt to kind of tie his arms there so he can't move, but um, the the other henchman is trying to reach through to cut the the shirt that he's been tied with, and he says, can't reach. It's like, yeah, you can. I don't know. I think that could have been thought out a little bit more because the way it's drawn, it sure doesn't look like he can't reach. I think he could have reached. I think it would have been a lot easier just to reach in a little bit more. I don't know, maybe he didn't want to reach in and get his finger broken by Rorschach or something like that. I don't know, it just seemed a little bit lame. Uh, it makes, it's very dramatic. I agree that it's very dramatic and it lets Rorschach electrocute the guy with the arc welder, which is cool. So, Watchmen, it is a pretty awesome book and if you haven't read it, I would definitely recommend reading it. I don't think everybody needs to buy the Absolute Edition, but it is pretty damn nice. 
if you want to watch the Watchmen motion comics and you don't feel like buying it because it's out on DVD, um, you can go to my uh, storage account, which I will put up a link for once again, and I've got them all uploaded there, and you can watch them for free because I like to put free things out. The uh, Star Trek comic is there too, Countdown, in case anybody wants to have a gander at that. So shh, don't tell anyone because I know it's illegal, but I want you guys to have it. So, oh, one more thing about Watchmen. I don't remember if I said this in the last time I talked about it, but I'm going to say it again. The huge flaw in Watchmen is that um, Silk Spectre 2, Lori, her real name is Laurel Jane, and not in this universe or any other universe that I know of is Lori a nickname for Laurel. It just isn't. They're two totally separate names. So I'm sorry, Alan Moore, you got that wrong. Well, I think I'm going to just wrap it up for now. I am going to do more reviews because I've got a whole bunch of comic books that I want to talk about, but I wanted you guys to know that I'm not done. I'm still going to do it. It's tough out there. Everybody's losing their jobs. I still have one. Logan still has one, which is good, even though we're not working as much as we were before. It's still pretty good to have a job. So um, keep reading the comic books. Drop me a line if you get a chance, and I'll be back. <laughs>